Welcome to the Seneca Podcast. I'm Kaiser Guo, and with me, of course, is Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com and soon to be father. How are you? Very, very well. It's a beautiful spring day. It really is. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about the reasons why it's often not gorgeous, because joining us today is Greg Anderson. Uh, Not to suggest that he runs anything. (laughs) Greg Anderson is back in Beijing this week uh, to attend the Beijing Auto Show. Greg has studied the Chinese auto industry extensively while working on his doctorate, and he's recently published a book based on his dissertation research entitled Designated Drivers, How China Plans to Dominate the Global Auto Industry, which is available from Amazon. Greg, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we jump in with Car Talk, Jeremy, anything big in the news that you think that merits our attention today? Well, just one thing that I think, because of the Borsi affair, has not been at all covered in the Western press is the, the ongoing scandal about medical capsules that are tainted with chromium. And this has been quite a big story in the right, Chinese it's been, press. Yeah, just about every day on the Baidu Beat, on our top 10, it's been showing up. Uh, the, the company that manufactures them has now issued an apology and says it's going to spend some Huge amount of money, I think 300 million RMB to, to build a new factory. Is that? I think that's one of them. But as far as I understood, it wasn't limited to only one right, company. Right. There were several companies. And uh, the reason why I think the story deserves a, a wider press uh, in the foreign media is that um, so many chemical and pharmaceutical companies source all kinds of things from China. And I haven't seen any reports that any of these capsules were being exported, but it's a very, very likely thing. And I, I know this from personal experience. My, my parents have a, a, a company in the pharmaceutical industry, and pretty much three quarters of the stuff they use now comes from China. Mm-hmm. Um, and this covers everything from just raw chemicals to uh, semi-processed or processed products. So it's something that would perhaps be worth uh, looking uh, following the story. Yeah, you know, maybe we should uh, devote a little more time to it. Did you happen to see that piece today uh, that ran in uh, the Harvard Crimson? Yes, I did. That is, I guess, something we have to mention. Little Guagua um, saying that he had good grades and didn't drive a Ferrari, but not really being too much too clear on anything else that he got up to. Right, and that that his uh, tuition and all his fees, both well at Harrow and and at Oxford, at Oxford and, and at Harvard now were all paid for by his hardworking mother, who, of course, was a successful lawyer for some time. And by scholarships. Right, and by scholarships. So right. Do we know where the, the story about the Ferrari originated? Um, we've heard this a lot, but is, it was anyone actually claimed to have seen this? In the Wall Street Journal, it was reported, okay. and I, I really don't know. I don't know if anyone's actually asked one of Huntsman's, whichever Huntsman daughter it was. Hmm. Huntsman, who, by the way, I think we should be seeing an announcement from soon. He, I think he's, he's got one foot out the door. He's going to be leaving the GOP, which will be very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's jump in and talk about our topic today. Greg, you're a political scientist, um, and you set out to study how state capitalism works in China and chose to study the auto industry as a kind of microcosm of it, right, or as a right. case study. So what made you gravitate toward that sector in particular, and to what extent do you think it really is illustrative of the workings of Chinese state capitalism? Um, well, I started out with a larger question, which was this whole notion of state capitalism. Um, we in the West tend to have this idea that to the degree the state is involved in business, it's less efficient, it's less productive, they're driven by political considerations, and uh, the private sector does business better. Mm-hmm. And because we have these ideas that we've sort of been, you could almost say, indoctrinated with, um, the next natural question is, well, if, uh, if state involvement in the economy is such a bad thing, why is China doing so well with it? 
And I wanted to choose one industry where I could dive deeply um, rather than try to do an across the board, and being only one person, of course. Um, I wanted to, to be able to dive deeply into a single industry. I chose the auto industry because you have a lot of variation among ownership types. You've got gigantic state-owned enterprises. You've got uh, some private companies that are pretty scrappy, yet among the top 10, so they're sizable. They're not also RANs. Mm-hmm. And you've got heavy foreign involvement as well. So among these different ownership types, you can you can see some variation in how they uh, interact with the government and even among each other. Yeah, you have your, your sort of private sector control groups or whatever. Exactly, right, right. exactly. Very good. That's that's interesting. Uh, now, um, let's get started with some of the, the basics. Um China, as I suppose most of our listeners are by now aware, is the world's largest automobile market and has been since when? Like 2008, 2009 was the year at first, went over the time. Uh, but not long ago, this was still, you know, very much the kingdom of bicycles. And to people like Jeremy and I, I mean, when Jeremy, what was... How many well, I got you out in 95 first. And I mean, at that time, the, the roads of Beijing were a third, some roads, a half bicycles. Mm-hmm. And... It was almost unheard of to have a private car, and yeah, it was you were unimaginable. Really right. special. It was unimaginable to, 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 for me, at least, to imagine that, 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 that it was it would become like this. That it would be just so goddamn congested that it would become such a major emphasis for you know. China's so may, maybe policy. this is a point at, uh, which I can ask because I seem to remember in the 1990s there was a, a, a decision taken. Uh, by the government, that the auto industry would become a pillar industry. Is that correct? Was it the 1990s when... Um, Actually, the first evidence I found of it was in 1986. Hmm. Um, In the uh, summer when they had their, the senior leadership had their Bay Dai Hu conference at the, uh, the, you know, by by the ocean there in the summer, they were picking some pillar industries. And one of those at that time they decided should be the auto industry. By that time, they already had a couple of uh, foreign joint ventures, one with uh, Beijing Jeep, right, which many people know of. And James then, Mann has written about. Right, an excellent book. Um, and then also Shanghai Volkswagen. So by then, they already had a couple of foreign companies here, and they decided, well, this is, I mean, we're developing, um, we're, we want to grow. Well, the countries we want to emulate, what do they look like? They've got gigantic auto industries. Uh, the Japanese, of course, and the Koreans were right there off China's shores, and uh, so those were sort of the examples so it goes all the way back to 86 that yeah. it was decided that they... I, and you, you, you cite Japan and Korea as the examples, not the United States. Well, of course, the United States was an example as well. But I think China looked to Japan and Korea more as um, more recent developers. The, the U.S. auto industry, of course, began around the turn of the 20th century, um, whereas the Japanese uh, got started, uh-huh. sort of restarted after World War II, and then the Koreans around 1960. So more recent examples of of countries that had developed uh, passenger auto industries from scratch. So what, what are we at now? How many cars are sold annually in China these days? Um, last year, 18.5 million. Okay. And what's the comparable figure for the United States? Uh, the U.S., I believe, last year was about 14 million. Okay. Yeah. And, and how does the rate of auto ownership compare between China and the U.S.? Um, quite different. And this is why um, so many foreigners are beating a path to China's door. Um, the last figure that I saw, uh, 2009, uh, passenger cars. Uh, the United States had 439 cars per thousand people. Oh my God. China had 35. Oh my God. And yeah. so the distance there. Um, right. And then when, if you throw in commercial vehicles, it's something like uh, about 800 in the U.S. to about 60 in China. So there's just a, a gigantic gap in there. And and um, I've been at an auto conference for the past two days and. These are the the kinds of figures that are often thrown around as this is why we're here. So. Could I just 
express my horror at this. Um, <laughs> Please do. <laughs> if if these uh, people who want China to look like the United States in terms of the rate of ownership have their way, the whole country is going to be a parking lot, is it not? Indeed. A polluter, yeah. very badly polluted, unpleasant, noisy parking lot. Well, right here in Beijing, we are looking at the future of the rest of the country if things continue on their current path. Just yeah. kill me now. <laughs> are you done expressing your horror, Jeremy? Not quite. Okay. Uh, Do you like think we finished. will continue on the current path? That's a good question. Predicting the future in China is pretty tough. Um, obviously, um, the biggest wild card here is the central government and how far they want things to go. Um, certainly, growth in the economy is of extreme importance. They want the economy to continue to grow, and they want to rebalance away from investment toward consumption. Right. Um, well, if you're doing that, what are the biggest things consumers buy? Houses and cars. Right. And so um, even though the housing market, um, depending on who you talk to, may be uh, in somewhat of a bubble, um, they don't want to dampen it too much because that is going to drive a lot of this supposed growth in consumption that's supposed to take the place of uh, a smaller percentage of uh, investment to drive mm -hmm. the economy. Likewise, automobiles can be a huge driver of the economy. And so even though in Beijing they see the results of what a lot of cars can do to a city, um, they're reluctant to damp down on that too much because, well, there's all, all these two, three, four, five-tier cities mm -hmm. um, out in the smaller cities that don't have the kind of saturation yet. And uh, they feel like there's a ton of potential out there. But, I mean, surely they do have some sense for what, you know, uh, maximal saturation ought to be because, you know, they do Im implement. I mean, Shanghai has and Beijing has, has right. have implemented, for example, the, the whole lottery system now right. if you want to buy right. a car. And, I, I mean, I understand that it's not such an easy thing to, to win permission to buy one now. Right. The alternating days or now, you know, the, uh, the, the, the – license plate system by which you can't take your car on the road two days a week. Right. Uh, but those those restrictions are all coming at the local level. They're not coming they're down not coming from nationally. Beijing. Okay. Um, local governments are doing that. And do five-year plans put actual targets on uh, you know, optimal rates of, of auto ownership for that period? I mean, do they have hmm. they target these? No, no they don't. Okay. Um, and, and really, you have to you have to sort of break it down by region. You can't really look at China as a whole. I mean, I, I gave you a number for China as a whole. But obviously, it's much greater than that in Beijing, and it's much smaller than that, say, for example, out in, uh, you know, outside of Chengdu in, in Sichuan. So, um, you know, they, they tend to look at it more regionally. Um, they see these local areas as potential. And uh, because in, in a place like Beijing, you've got restrictions, um, it, sales fell 50 percent mm -hmm. when Beijing first introduced its restrictions uh, right. a couple of years ago. Um, I, you may have seen the statistic in The Economist a couple of weeks ago. There are uh, now 5 million registered vehicles in Beijing. Good God. And only 740,000 legal parking spaces. <laughs> now, I talked to someone who said that The Economist may have not counted everything. They may have missed a few parking garages here and there. But you get We're the still picture. not over a million then. So right a lot of these cars are either just in motion or parked on the sidewalk. I believe they're all stuck on the streets. Or sitting on the, the ring road, yes. <laughs> I, I'm just about over my horror. Actually, I'll never be over my horror about this. But um, w let's, I'll put my business hat on and ask about uh, auto exports. How are Chinese, uh, how is the Chinese car ind industry um, going out into the world? 
Well, those... oh, and before you answer, maybe I mean, okay. is this is is that a goal? I mean, are, are you, you you were talking Certainly. about how the auto industry is sort of about in, in increasing domestic consumption. So, is export even something that they're really focused on? Oh yes, absolutely. And okay. and in fact, um, exports were initially how a lot of the smaller. Uh, auto companies and private auto companies got the attention of Beijing and said, hey, don't kill us. Look what we're doing. Um, you can't see me waving my hands, can you? Right. Um, <laughs> but they, were, they, they could see them yes. waving their hands. Like um, we're talking about Chiray and, and, right. and so forth. Um, but yes, uh, yes, Chiray, Cherry. Um, and initially, they weren't supposed to exist. They were started up sort of under the radar, and uh, they, they bought a, an old assembly line from Ford in the U.K. They bought the plans from an old model Jetta from VW of Spain, um, started making these cars locally just in Wuhu City in, in uh, Anhui province. Wuhu. Wuhu. And um, these were just made for local consumption. People could drive them around the city. You couldn't drive them outside of Anhui because they weren't legal. They couldn't be given a license plate. Eventually, the central government becomes aware of this and says, hey, you can't do that. And uh, Cherry said, well, wh- what about this factory and all these people that we well, have employment, working yeah. here? And Beijing sort of stepped in and said, well, okay, let us help you out here. And some strings were pulled, and basically they, fa- they helped them to get legal by partnering up with Shanghai Auto. And that went on for a few years until Cherry decided to copy the Chevrolet Spark. Oh, right. And the QQ, right? Right. The QQ was a copy of the Spark. General Motors became aware of this and went to their partner, Shanghai Auto, and said, hey, look at this little company out here is copying our car. And uh, Shanghai Auto said, ah, yeah, you know about that? We kind of own part of that company. <laughs> and so that didn't go down well. And uh, Shanghai Auto ended up having to wash its hands of Cherry. Well, by this time, Cherry had been making a lot of cars and had been exporting to uh, basically other developing countries. Uh, Africa, Latin America, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And by this time, Beijing looks at Cherry and says, well, okay, you guys are exporting. So, all right, fine. We'll list your cars in the official register, and you are free to legally sell cars. And this is sort of how um, the BYDs, the Geelys, the Great Walls got the attention of Beijing is by exporting cars. Are all of these privately owned companies? I thought that some of these that you just mentioned, I mean, isn't Geely partially government-owned or – um, uh, Cherry. Cherry is. Okay. Cherry is owned by the city of Wuhu. Oh, okay, um, okay. A lot of people mistake Cherry as a private company. Ah, um, see, it's actually an SOE. It's run by an entrepreneur who was, I, I'm not sure if he's still the uh, party secretary of Wuhu or not, but um, it, he was, it was started by him. Wow. Uh, BYD, Jilly, and uh, Great Wall are all private. And BYD, of course, very famously took investment from from um, Buffett. Warren right. Buffett. Right. Uh, what's happened to that and to them? BYD, um, really, you may remember back in 2009, captured a lot of attention. I guess it was 2008 when, when Warren Buffett first came out mm-hmm. and said he's mm-hmm. buying 10% of this company. Um, electric vehicles are the future. Uh, Buffett is on the cover of, uh, I believe it was Fortune, holding a, a, a plug standing in front of a car. Um, it was a big deal. Um BYD made a big splash. They came out and said, we've got this car, the F3DM. It's going to be the world's first production plug-in hybrid. Mm-hmm. And it was, but nobody bought it. Huh. And so, yes, they produced it, um, but they had trouble finding an audience for it. Um, the leader of that company, uh, Wang Chuan Fu, is an, a true entrepreneur at heart. 
um, had this great idea. Um, he comes from a background where the, his company was building uh, batteries for laptops and uh, cell phones. Mm. Hey, let's take these batteries, these lithium-ion batteries, and put them in a car. And I don't know if you guys saw today, there was an article uh, in AP just this afternoon before I headed over, written by Joe McDonald, who incidentally went to University High School in Tucson, Arizona with me. <laughs> hey, Joe. Uh, he, he was talking about basically the death knell for the electric car or, you know, is it the end of the road? I can't remember how they, they cleverly titled it, but uh, suggesting that, that um, you know, the – at least that Beijing has fallen pretty far short of its lofty goals for, for electric right. car deployment. Uh, what's going on there? Um, in 2009, this was uh, – there was a, a what they call a restructuring and – a revitalization and stimulus plan, sorry, um, where um, to counteract the effects of the global financial crisis at the time, they pumped a lot of money into the auto industry. Mm-hmm. And they came out with this plan that included all these various uh, stimulus ideas – Plus some uh, new rules about uh, the Xinengyuan Qicha, new energy vehicles, which uh, encompasses electric vehicles and hybrids and all that sort of thing. And they um, announced this ambitious goal. The the state was going to pump a lot of money into uh, development, and they wanted to have capacity, production capacity of 500,000 cars by the end of 2011. Mm -hmm. It fell far short of that. Yes. Um, in 2011, I believe 8,159 new energy vehicles were sold oh, no. nationwide in China. And when you say new energy, would that include hybrids? Yeah, definitely. Yes, so 8,000, fewer than 9,000 hybrids, right. any kind of new energy. Right. Wow. Well, you know, like consumers anywhere in the world, Chinese consumers are no different. They know a good value when they see it. And they know a bad value when they see it. And right now, the technology and the price simply haven't reached a point where the average consumer will buy one of these new energy vehicles. For for the same amount of money you would spend for a hybrid or an electric car, you could get a much larger car. Or you could get a foreign-branded car instead of a Chinese-branded car. So they have choices. And this is this is an important lesson, I think, that Beijing is learning, at least in this regard – which is when consumers have a role in the industry, you can't tell them what to do. That's right. Um, you can certainly structure incentives, and, and the, the state has put some incentives out there in, in some limited cities, but there's still not enough to get people into these cars. Yeah, the incentives are clearly not, not nearly enough right. right now, right? It's the same in it's the U.S. Pity. I mean, right. you only see Priuses in Los Angeles um, in large number. Um, other parts of the country. The Bay Area you, more right, than the Bay Area, area of course. I think in my right. experience. Yeah, right. It's linked not only to uh, <laughs> to incentives but to politics there. Right, right. Uh, what's been the fate of major auto brands that have made their way into Chinese hands? I mean, I think we're all aware that Hummer, for example, was bought by some company in Sichuan. No, it wasn't, actually. They oh, didn't it didn't go through. They attempted. Yes. Okay, okay, they attempted to. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a little behind on my car talk. On your Hummer news. No. <laughs> so, but there, there, what, what was Saab was another uh, brand that was looking at an acquisition from a Chinese company. What Have any of these... Volvo? Have, Volvo? Volvo. It's owned by Geely, right? Right. right. Volvo, yeah. really the, the only you know full auto company lock, stock, and barrel sold to a Chinese company was Volvo. Okay. Um, and yes, it was bought by Geely in uh, 2000... Well, I think it was completed in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an important part of Geely's strategy now. Um, Beijing Auto bought some models and uh, I believe some assembly line from uh, Saab. But Saab, the company, still is... Still hoping for a big rescue right now. Hummer has disappeared. Um, so Good riddance. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that it, this is an important point here is the Chinese um, auto companies 
are trying to differentiate themselves and are trying to uh, trying to innovate, trying to bring new technology to the market. But it's tough when you don't have the right kinds of incentives in place. Mm. The private companies, like like the Geely's and the Great Walls of the world, have these incentives because they got to eat. Um, when you don't have the government to backstop your losses, innovation and introductions of new technology and having exciting ex- designs are essential to their existence. And so Geely, by buying Volvo, um, puts itself in a position to be able to associate itself with this foreign brand that is known for luxury and safety. Um, and that's a real key. The difficulty that uh, the Chinese industry has is, unlike a lot of us who grew up around cars, watching our parents drive cars, um, maybe in my case, like standing up on the front seat while your father drove. Uh, <laughs> kids can't do that anymore. Um, but we sort of grew up in these car cultures. And engineers who work in Detroit grew up around cars, thinking about cars, reading car and driver, road and track. And so there's sort of this mindset that the Chinese are only just now beginning to develop. And so... The real romance of the road. Right, right. And so getting your hands on a source of ready, instant technology, rather than waiting to develop that culture, is what a lot of companies are trying to do. That probably won't happen until, you know, a hefty percentage of Chinese are actually conceived in automobiles the way we all were. (laughs) Um, so, I mean, is that the answer then to the, the, the question that you sought in your book in, in Designated Driver? Um, do they need to be backstopped by uh, – or, I mean, it, it's, it's not having the state behind them that, that sort of stimulates the real innovative and risk-taking kinds of, of mentality? Is, so you essentially conclude that state capitalism doesn't work in this context. Well, the, the conclusion really is that state capitalism has helped China to pick a lot of the low-hanging fruit. Okay. To go from no auto industry to the world's largest. I mean, that's you can't deny that's a quite an amazing accomplishment. Sure, sure. But and, and what's the rough breakdown? I mean, how are we talking? Is this it, we're talking mainly SOE? Are we talking? What? Oh, yes. I, I really, really have no clear idea. Okay. Yes, mainly SOE. Among the top dozen automakers, uh, three are private, and they tend to be down at the bottom of that. Okay. And then you've got up at the top these massive SOEs that are making, you know, two, three, four million cars a year, all with foreign partners. And this is the other big differentiator between uh-huh. the SOEs and the privates. The SOEs have foreign partners who bring technology, they bring know-how, and uh, the SOE essentially doesn't have to innovate, doesn't have to invest a lot of money in R&D, research and development, because their partner brings it. The private companies, on the other hand, until recently, um, were never allowed to to partner with foreign companies. So they had to make it up on their own or copy it, which many of, many of them have done. So, so tell us about the Beijing Auto Show. That's, that's why you're here this year. I mean, presumably, with China now the world's biggest auto market, the show's taking on greater and greater significance. And uh, how has it changed over the years? You've probably, you've, over many years now, you've probably been, been watching the show. Um, this year, and the, the thing I'm looking for this year, actually I haven't been yet. Um, I'm going tomorrow, oh, okay. my, okay. my day at the show this year. But the thing I'm looking for this year is... Booth babes. Um, the, well, of course, the, the booth babes. Those are hard to see, though, because they're surrounded by all these uh, guys with point-and-shoot cameras who are trying to get a shot. But um, I'm, I'm really eager to see the concept cars that are coming out of the Chinese automakers. Um, concepts, as you know, they're not uh, necessarily going to be produced, but it gives an idea of what their thinking is 
and you may see elements of concept cars in production models in you know in, in the near future. So um, I'm I'm eager to see what these concept cars look like. What sort of design elements they're introducing? Are they simply copies of what we're seeing on foreign cars already, or do they have any uniquenesses that stand out? That's that's the thing I'm looking for. Last uh, auto show I went to was 2009 in Shanghai. Okay. Um, and there were some weird concept cars that were kind of funky, but the ones that were sort of close to possibly being production models were essentially copies of stuff you had seen elsewhere. I see. So. And, um, you know, because China is now such a, a major market for export, you'd think that automakers, you know, big global automakers would be, you know, debuting new cars here. In, I remember reading about that a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. That was already a phenomenon. Was is that the case this year as well? Um, not this year, and um, that's that's actually, um, I guess, a bit of a disappointment. Um, I remember in two thousand nine, the the Porsche uh, Panamera was was debuted in oh, Shanghai. Okay. That was that was huge, and uh, you see those all over LA now. But um, this year, I think uh, there's going to be a variant of the Cayenne. <laughs> uh, introduced. That's the only foreign debut okay. um, at this year's show. I'm not sure why that is, but because the Cayenne is so goddamn popular. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't you think that's quite a smart strategy? I mean, it's the the Apple strategy to China, which is ignore it until your product is extremely cool overseas, and then sell in China. Uh, that's possible. The um, there've been there were a ton of, of debuts just recently in. Um, was it Frankfurt or Geneva um, in, in Europe? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it surprised me that there were a, a number of debuts, including some Japanese ones, um, why they didn't save them for Beijing. Because right. China is still the, right. the hot market in the world. This is the fastest-growing auto market in the world still, even though um, it's slowed a bit this year so far. But in terms of passenger cars in, in, in China, passenger cars are still growing very well so far this year. So, I mean, why is it that the foreign brands still completely dominate? I think you, you would, uh, we'd been talking before that you were telling me that 70%, uh, actually it's up, it's 71% right. now uh, of, of autos sold last year were, uh, were were foreign manufactured. That's actually, or foreign brands, brands anyway, right. uh, up from, from 70%. It's in the right. wrong direction from Beijing's point of view. Right. What's right. going on there? Well, um, those are... Uh, uh, just passenger cars, not all vehicles. Okay. Um, actually, in commercial vehicles, the Chinese brands dominate. Um, but when we talk about passenger vehicles, um, yeah, there's there was a goal. Again, this 2009 plan that I mentioned, um, they set a very specific goal in terms of market share for Chinese branded passenger cars. Mm-hmm. And the goal was by 2011, they wanted Chinese branded passenger cars to reach 30% market share, up from, I believe it was around 25% at the time, 25, 26. Well, they hit that goal. But then they turned around and reversed in 2011. Huh. The reason is, um, you may remember 20, 2009 and uh, 2010, auto sales just they blossomed. They were insane, yeah. Yeah, like 48% growth in uh, 2009 and then about 32% in, in 2010. Uh, the reason for that was stimulus. Again, that plan from 2009 included a huge stimulus that just made sales. It, it Essentially, it took sales that were going to happen in the future and pulled them it forward. pulled them forward, right. And so in 2011, the market sort of paid for that by having um, sales growth in passenger cars. It was only 5%. But the big surprise, again, was um, uh, the market share of Chinese brands, which had been trending up for years, took a step back. And that was a big surprise to everyone. Um, I can't answer why that is. Um, and uh, all I can say is that was a huge disappointment. 
to mm. the Chinese because the goal is ultimately not to be having all these foreign brands sold here, but to be having Chinese brands sold here. And not just here, but everywhere else in the world. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, you you um, started off when you were describing uh, the impetus for your research, uh, talking about the, the sort of neighborhood context, Korea and Japan. I mean, the nature of your study naturally just in, invites comparison to these two, which had, you know, both very extensive industrial policy that was sort of pushing for them. Uh, have we seen anything similar to that here? Um, and how 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 has development compared? I mean, it's, it's a big question, but in general terms, how has the development of the auto industry really differed among these three countries, these three Northeast Asian mm-hmm. countries? Well, the similarity of, of all three is that the state was heavily involved in planning mm-hmm. up front. The state had very clear goals, wanted to build a robust passenger car industry. Um, again, the Japanese and the Koreans were also looking across the ocean at the U.S. Hey, this is, the, this is our goal. They've got a big auto industry. We need to do that too. That's sort of where the similarities end, though. Um, even though the Japanese and Koreans started out um, with a state-owned company in each country, um, ultimately the state got out of it. Um, it. Literally, it lasted a couple of years in both countries. I see. The state divested itself and allowed the private sector to run. Now, the state still had a pretty heavy hand, but they didn't have complete autonomy. Um, the private automakers in Japan and Korea were able to, to do a lot of things on their own. Um, Honda was not wanted by Japan. They didn't want Honda in the market. Honda shoved its way in there. And of course, the rest is history. They were making small engine vehicles. They were making motorcycles and Right. They went from motorcycles to, and now they're a a very reputable car. The difference, though, is with China. Um, China, early on, invited foreigners in because they knew they needed the technology that was possessed by the foreigners. Um, The Japanese and Koreans sort of kept the foreign auto companies um, at arm's length. Mm -hmm. They kept them on short contracts, they kept extremely high tariffs on foreign cars, um, which was okay with America because Japan and Korea were Cold War allies. And so they could kind of get away with that. China obviously can't. Or well, I mean, tariffs on imported vehicles are still pretty high, aren't they? Um, in Japan and Korea, no. Um, no, no, I mean here in China. Oh, in China. Uh, about 25% now. Just 25%? Yeah. Um, Is this just sort of in accordance with WTO schedule? Right, okay. right. It was up around 100% um, before China entered WTO, and it's gradually come down to 25% and okay. has been there since 2006. Um, so Japan and Korea sort of kept the foreigners at bay, gave, gave their local auto companies time to develop cars that Japanese and Korean consumers wanted that had the elements they liked. Um, in China, because the foreigners came in quickly, immediately, sort of established this idea in the minds of Chinese consumers that the, the superior product, the superior quality is coming from overseas. Mm-hmm. Now that China is pushing so hard to develop Chinese branded cars, um, this mindset is already stuck. And so now the Chinese companies are having to essentially go out and do organic growth and convince Chinese consumers, one consumer at a time, that Chinese technology is as good as foreign technology. But isn't it true that Chinese cars are still crap? Um, <laughs> many of them are, yes. Um, some of them are not. Um, Shanghai Auto with its uh, Rowway and uh, MG marks, which, by the way, were bought from a British company. Uh-huh, MG, um, sure. Yeah. Right. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the local branded cars are actually pretty close in quality now. 
Um, they are, some of them are closing the gap in terms of quality of performance. How is the quality maintained, for example, with, with – um, I mean, is if I bought a, a Volvo S80, is it going to be as good as if I had bought one that had been manufactured in Sweden? Or? Um, the folks at Volvo will tell you yes. Okay. <laughs> well, um, that doesn't surprise me at yes, all. Yes, and the okay. folks at BMW will tell you yes, a China-made BMW is as good as one imported from Germany. Okay. But there are websites in China maintained by – auto aficionados that will go through and take a China-made Volvo or BMW or whatever and compare the China-made version with the imported version bit by bit, piece by piece, so that consumers know what the difference is. And I, I would assume there must be differences. Otherwise, what would be Why the point? It, right? right. This is not a, a problem exclusive to the auto industry, of course. I mean, uh, mm. there are millions of people who make their money on Taobao selling stuff that they have imported themselves. And people would rather trust some dodgy person on the internet to provide them with their baby milk or certain other products than, than buy a local brand. So, mm. uh, I mean, I, the, it doesn't seem to me that this is something that could change very quickly, especially with something that is both so closely uh, associated with status and with safety. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it does. China is at a bit of, bit of a disadvantage relative to Japan and Korea. I mean, one big difference is China is trying to crank up its industry in the Internet age. And so consumers are very much empowered nowadays. Uh, yeah, very much. They know exactly right. what they're looking for. I mean, anytime I – I mean, at, at a point where I was thinking about buying a car a few years ago, my God, everyone was a expert. Everyone had an opinion. Right. It was just unbelievable. Right. Uh, there were resources. I mean, resources abound. I mean, it's 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 insane. Yeah. Um, what's – the the the, obvi- the ops- upside is obvious why these foreign companies are participating here, but is there a downside risk for them? Are they are they having to give up a lot of? Are they having to to transfer a lot of technology to to local SOE partners? Mm-hmm. Are they having to uh, you know risk a lot of intellectual property flight? Well, certainly. I mean, we saw it as far back as the Cherry QQ. Right. That was um, the one glaring instance. But. Right. It's it's difficult because, um, I mean, executives that I talk to from, from foreign companies, both components and uh, auto assemblers, have said when you take your technology to China, it bleeds. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It That's will right. find its way into the hands of others. Um, there's a real hunger for that foreign technology. Um, they do their best to mitigate it. They tend to try to bring um, not the latest and greatest. So, for example, General Motors is bringing the Volt over here, mm-hmm. but they're not bringing their uh, fuel cell cars, which uh, are right. still very much under lock and key in Detroit. Um, so, you know, that's they have a number of ways to try to mitigate it, but there is a risk. Um, the sort of the more the most recent tactic. Um, coming out of Beijing has been, and this has been attested to by executives from a number of foreign auto companies, Um, when you go to Beijing for approval for something, uh, you may want to, if it's to start a new joint venture, to open a new factory, or to expand an existing factory, you have to go and get approvals for that. Um, While their, uh, their application is awaiting approval, they find that Approval is not forthcoming unless they also submit Sign a, a plans. Technology transfer. Or to right. It's not necessarily technology transfer, but uh, a plan to help their Chinese partner produce a Chinese-branded car. Uh, uh. So actually, China is forbidden from demanding 
technology transfer as a condition for investment approval has been since it joined the WTO in 2001. Mm -hmm. So the demands then are no longer overt. They're sort of of implicit. implicit. And so – and the way that the foreign auto companies are reacting to this is they bring – last year's technology or two years ago technology, and they, they'll they hand that over to their Chinese partner. Um, for example, the um, Guangzhou Auto is building a car called the Everest. Mm-hmm. It's an old Honda Fit or a right. generation back. And so it's just rebranded with this new name. Um, and the, the goal there is to sort of wean the Chinese consumers off of this notion that only foreign cars have good technology. But again, the consumers aren't stupid. They get that this is a Honda. Right. They they understand this. It's just got a Chinese brand on it. And so um, I don't think it's going to be as effective as Beijing is hoping it will be. Let's talk about the export market a little bit. Now, how has China fared in terms of exporting to the developed world? I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about you know, the developing world, how your Chirais and so forth are, are getting into Africa. But what about to, to Europe, to North America, to, to Japan? They're just beginning to dip their toes in the water in the developed world. Um, they started oh, back, I think, around 2006, 2007, uh, China Brilliance, which is uh, headquartered up in uh, Xinjiang, mm-hmm. um, exported some cars to Europe. They were crash-tested um, by a German company and fared very poorly, and mm-hmm. the and films of it were put on, uh, I guess it was YouTube, and uh, the Chinese felt blindsided because the the tests weren't coordinated with them, and, and Brilliance pulled out of Europe. Sort of, they realized, okay, we're going to have to do more than just throw cars at the market. They've got to pass all these tests first. So they pulled back. Um, in the meanwhile, in recent years, we've seen Great Wall going to Australia. So they sell um, probably um, maybe between ten and 20,000 SUVs a year in Australia. Hmm. Uh, Cherry just last year had started going into Australia as well. Um, Great Wall is selling in a few uh, small vans in Italy right now. Great Wall has built a factory in Bulgaria, which has just started operation. The idea there is the cars produced in Bulgaria would be um, uh, sent to uh, Central Europe and, yeah, for all over Europe, Europe uh, all fact, over Europe. Um, because Europe has uh, unified standards. So if, if uh-huh. they can be sold in Bulgaria, they can be sold in France. <laughs> um, and uh, Shanghai Auto um, sells its MG. In uh, the UK, that's where MG came from originally. Okay. Um, Geely and Great Wall are looking to go in, but they're just dipping their toes in. So, and, and what about the exports of, of the brands that are here? Of, for example, of, of Volkswagen here, uh, are they selling Chinese manufactured autos back into Germany or back into their home markets? No. Um, the let's see, there's a Honda venture that has been exporting Hondas from China for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but these all tend to go to other developing countries. I see. Um, Shanghai GM are now exporting some uh, Chevrolets to uh, Latin America, but they're not exporting them back to their home markets. And of course, the UAW would have a lot to say about that if they were to attempt to ship Chinese-made cars back to the United States. Well, without wanting to spoil the ending of your book, I mean, can you can you share with us your your basic conclusions? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you, after um, your your very extensive doctoral research and uh, this book that I'm, I've got here next to me now, uh, what, what what did you learn at the end of it? I mean, what's what are your big big takeaways? Well, the big takeaway is that I feel that that China's system has been really effective, and when something works, 
it's tough to want to change it. So there are a lot of vested interests in the way things work now in China. Um, the problem that I see specific to the auto industry is that the innovation is not going to come until the system changes. The system is stacked against innovation, and um, it's going to take a major change in attitude from Beijing. I, I wasn't looking for this outcome. I was looking to understand why China has been doing so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and what yeah, I that's found, what it sounded like when you said that. Right. And so what I found is that um, they have managed to pick the low-hanging fruit, and now they're sort of at a crossroads. That sounds like my industry a bit. Well, it well, sounds it, like the entire Chinese economy, really. Isn't this a, a well, question is, yes. across the, the range of industries? And even, I mean, political reform, you could say the right. same thing. Well, that's precisely what I set out to do. And, of course, uh, yes, as Kaiser mentioned, I'm a political scientist. Um, but I have a, big, um, a business background as well. I worked in finance for a long time. So mm-hmm. uh, the combination of these two has always fascinated me. And so I wanted to look at this aspect of China to try to understand it better and to shed a little bit of light on it and to get some feel as to how sustainable is the system the way it is. Um, I was willing to find the system sustainable. I really was looking for that. Um, I have to say I, I didn't find that. Well, let me put in one, one final plug, Designated Drivers, How China Plans to Dominate the Global Auto Industry. I see that the foreword was written by none other than Arthur Kroger, who has been a frequent guest on our show. Yes. Uh, that lends it a real good, good, good bit of credibility here. Uh, I really look forward to reading it. Now, before we go, uh, we have a, a, a thing that we do each week where we endorse something or that we, we rec- make a recommendation. Uh, I don't know if you've got something at the ready, but if you don't, I'm sure Jeremy's got something for us. Yeah, well, I just want to – oh, sorry. Oh, well, I actually do. Oh, I mean, good. Something at the ready. I mean, aside there. from my own book, which I would highly recommend, I've been reading it for the past several years myself. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I've lately been reading a book by E.F. Schumacher. Uh-huh. Um, and it's uh, – the name escapes me at the moment. If I, if you hadn't asked me what I was reading, I, I could have told you, but um, I didn't bring it with me. But E.F. Schumacher is the, the author. The book was originally written in 1974. And it's uh, the subtitle is Economics as if People Matter. Ah, okay. And, um, a novel know, approach. <laughs> well, Jeremy sort of alluded to this uh, early in the conversation, just his, his horror. And I, I share this. Um, as I look at this industry that plans to grow like gangbusters, what's it going to do to China? What's it going to do to America? What's it going to do to the world? Not just this industry, but this whole idea of life is built on more, 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 more. Right. And back in the 70s, this, this guy, this economist, really challenged conventional thinking. It sounds like it might have been written very recently. And so I've, I've picked it up, and I've been sort of fascinated by some of the things that were being said 30 years ago. Well, I'll definitely have to take a look at it. E.F. Schumacher, and we'll put a, a link to it on, on the podcast page. Jeremy, your turn. I just would like to recommend a blog that I discovered fairly recently called Sinostand.com. Uh, by a gentleman the name of Eric Fish, I think. Uh, and in, there's one particular post called The Remarkable S- Similarities Between CCTV Interviews and People's Daily Editorials. And the blogger, he looked at um, uh, CCTV uh, reports um, about uh, the Borsilai affair, um, and they interviewed a bunch of people on the street as to their opinions. And mm. he also then contrasted these opinions with editorials in the People's Daily. And it's really quite amazing how in tune the People's Daily are with the, the, the people on the street that CCTV interviewed because all of them 
pretty much parroted the people's daily line. Anyway, a rather amusing post. Came and a good, the, good blog to follow. Shocking conclusion that, that propaganda that actually... The CCTV is, in fact, propaganda. <laughs> so yes, who is no. influencing whom? <laughs> right. That's, uh... Yeah, uh, not a shocking conclusion, but nicely illustrated. Right, mm. right, right, right. I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a, a title that would sort of turn me off to actually wanting to read the, the essay because I, I just assume it to be true. Um, so let me wrap up here. I've got um, Yale Global Online, which is a publication of the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization. They've got a series of essays recently, of China-related essays. Um, earlier this month in April, um, April 9, I believe it was, Frank Ching uh, out of Hong Kong wrote on whether Boise Lai's fall will usher in a new era of reform, which has been quite quite a hot topic. People are sort of lining up in sort of the optimist and pessimist camps. Uh, Frank Ching takes a, a, a look at this. And then there's been a three-part series just more recently called Power Shift in China, which, of course, looks at, at the fallout of this uh, from a sort of factional politics point of view written by Cheng Li uh, from the Brookings Institution, who's been one of the more prolific writers on, on factional politics in China. Um, and he, of course, has uh, famously kind of staked out in a more optimistic position uh, on, on, on what this is going. And then he's, he's there's another piece by fam- former Ambassador Stapleton Roy, and finally a, a piece by Susan Shirk. Both of these look at sort of foreign policy dimensions of this. Uh, very, very good series. I highly recommend it. And I, I really hadn't been looking at Yale Global Online, and uh, I realized there's, there's actually quite a bit of, of very good essay writing going on there. Anyway, hey. Greg, it's great to have you here. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking into your book. Jeremy, as usual. Thank you, guys. Let us um, convene again soon, and uh, I hope to see you all again next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.